Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios, wishful thinking about Law Radio USA. <laughs> Thank you, Howard. Broadcasting from our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area where we dedicate the first 45 to 90 seconds of every show to technical difficulties primarily caused by Howard Lapidus. That's because I've got a cold. Makes me resonate. Yeah, well, my, my mic's working for a change. That's good, too. And, and Mark C.G. Boyer, who's been here for about an hour and a half and now comes into the studio carrying his laundry, a bag of cookies, his research that he gave to me. Thank you. And, research. and now his chair is, is loaded down with, uh, this is just, you could have done this a half hour ago, Mark. Now it's my and now, mic. And now it's your mic. Don't, yeah. touch it. don't touch it. That's what I tell him. Don't touch it. Look at it. Don't touch it. And the great Margot Nash. Is Margot here. Nash is a troublemaker. Margot, are you there, honey? I shouldn't call I her, am honey. here. Boy, you are a troublemaker. Can't you let sleeping dogs lie? Why do you have to stir up so much trouble? And uh, because she likes to, Pearl. I mean, you well, know. wasn't my that wasn't my intent. <laughs> it, yeah. But just because you were pursuing it's, justice is no excuse. And the American way, no less. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, I must compliment you. Not that anyone's holding a gun to my head, but I was reading the book, and I, this is going to sound like I'm really blowing cosmic smoke. But if there was a class on how to construct a true crime book, uh, yeah. I, I would use your book as a, a example in the classroom. Wow! Thank you. That's that. Uh, that's quite a compliment. Per- perfectly put together book. I started reading the way that thing opens up. Uh, just grabbed me and dragged me, kicking and screaming, <laughs> from one chapter to another. Uh, we need the Great. background on the story, Margot. Tell uh, tell us just like okay. you do at the beginning of the book. What happened to, to you? What did you get a phone call? You mean how I got involved in the yeah, case? Yeah, right. Uh, I was a practicing lawyer. I've been a lawyer about twelve years at that point, and I did uh, public defender work and guardian ad litem work in the Somerville District Court, and I got a call from the court asking me if I would be a guardian ad litem for a juvenile who had been charged with murder. And I, of course, knew exactly what case they were talking about, because uh, it had been, you know, so in the news. Now, what, I, uh, tell us what that case is. If I was just to open my newspaper and here's this story, what, what murder is this? Okay. Uh, on July 23rd of 1995, uh, a 42-year-old mother of four, Janet Downing, was brutally and savagely murdered in her own home at some time around, sometime between 8 and 10 p.m., um, uh, on a hot summer night. Her, and, home, uh, her home being where? In Somerville, Massachusetts. Okay. Very, very beautiful residential area of Just a family of the neighborhood, of uh, single-family homes, lots of kids, Irish neighborhood. Almost all neighborhoods in, in Boston are Irish except the North End. No, that's not true. <laughs> how is was Howard's delusions? Well, it is. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Howard is there. I lived there way too long. In the old days. Yep. Yeah, he was yeah. there during the nativist movement. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway, so this woman is horribly, brutally murdered in this nice residential neighborhood. Why did they arrest this kid? Um, they arrested Eddie because, uh, the, for a couple of reasons. Uh, they arrested him. Uh, they, he was a suspect immediately, okay? Um, Eddie had gone down to the neighborhood store at about 10 o'clock that night, which is exactly the same time they were arriving at the Downing home uh, to find Janet. The, the police were arriving at the Downing home. Eddie had arrived at Midnight Variety, a little store he worked in, and he uh, told the owner that he had just been mugged in Union Square. So his call came into the police at the same time they were uh, investigating, or had just arrived at the Janet Downing murder, and they immediately, dis- for no reason, disbelieved the story that he had been mugged and immediately focused on him oh, uh, since um, he claimed that he was uh, mugged in Union Square by two boys with a knife. 
So because he was a victim of a mugging, he was an immediate suspect in a brutal murder. Apparently. <laughs> it, it made that's no the sense. new logic. It, <laughs> it made no sense at the time. Um, later, it wasn't until the next day that the police uh, found, found out that three of his friends had seen someone who looked like him leaving the house. Uh, they didn't arrest him right away, but he was a suspect right away. I mean, in, in other words, that night they brought him down to the police station, the night of the murder, J uh, July 23rd or early morning of the 24th. They brought him down to the police station, took his clothes and his sneakers, fingerprinted him, photographed him, but let him go home um, and said that they were investigating the mugging. But they but, weren't. Well, if you're in, if you're a victim of a mugging, they don't usually take your clothes <laughs> and <laughs> fingerprint you, <laughs> and and ask you to sign a Miranda waiver. Yeah. Oh, boy. come on now. <clears throat> did did he know the victim? Oh, absolutely. It was his best friend's mother. Yeah. Okay. He had known Janet since he was a toddler. It seems like what we have here is. I know it gets to be more complex and horrifying than it seems so far. But it, it, uh, at first blush, it looks like the cops are just, you know, take the, the first uh, available suspect and focus on him and not uh, look any further. That's, I think, it uh, can be a fair assessment of what occurred here because, in fact, there were so many facts that the uh, police really uh, refused to listen to, refused to follow, refused to even hear. Um, the first responders who, who were were at the scene uh, before the police arrived were not interviewed. Oh, um, boy. Yeah. The, the, uh, Janet, uh, Janet owned the home, and it was a um, duplex. It shared a party wall, and the party neighbors heard uh, a commotion at uh, a, a specific time and uh, were very clear about what they heard. They heard somebody either falling down the stairs or tumbling down the stairs, um, at 8.15 that night, and they were summoned over to the house by uh, when R Ryan, who was Eddie's best friend, came home and found his mother uh, lying on the on the dining room floor. He ran out of the house, ran over to Eddie's house, mm -hmm. got Eddie's father, and Eddie's father got the, um, the Reckleys, uh, Barry and Virginia Reckley, the party neighbors, the, the party wall neighbors, and the three of them went into the house and uh, and observed what the scene was. Um, they were in that house for about an hour. The Reckleys were never interviewed. Oh, my God. Who are they? Right. These are like Barney Fife Juniors on a bad day. Well, um, I, I, you know, I wish it was, you know, I, maybe you're right. <laughs> if, it was, if it was simple incompetence, um, that's one thing. If it were deliberate Yes, that's my uh, are we talking that's are we thing. talking about the Boston Police Department? We're talking about the Somerville Police so there's Department. So there's there's a separate it, uh, initially and by the way, Eddie's grandfather who was across the street that night uh, lived with Eddie lived at, uh, his grandfather lived in his house which is 25 yards across the street from the um, from the victim's home. Eddie's grandfather was the chief of police of Somerville for 20 years. So he Eddie came from a police family, and uh, you know he was well known in the community. And his father, the chief, his grandfather, the chief, um, lived uh, right on Boston Street and now, was there. Uh, in the beginning night. of your book, which is uh, the politics of murder, right? You say that is it was your job, your position as guardian ad litem, to protect the child, and you said it was uh, impossible for you to. Right, right. My, my my role, I think, was to make sure that he was getting um, uh, adequate legal representation, understood the proceedings, knew what was happening, and it was impossible to do that. Uh, and, and in fact, as I say, um, there was so much going on politically that I was really not aware of, or I, I, although I was aware of it, I was not putting the pieces together. Um, uh, for instance, um, at the time, there was a big movement to um, try juveniles as adults, um, even as young as age 14. That had not been the law in Massachusetts. Several amendments had been made to that law 
to the juvenile laws in Massachusetts since 1991 in response to brutal murders that actually happened to be teen-on-teen murders in Boston. And, and they were African-American shooters against African-American victims. And there was the whole super predator yeah. fiasco that was going on at the time. And I was, although aware of those facts, didn't put them in the context of this particular uh, scenario that I found myself so in the middle of. So do you think that, or did you discover that there were people with political motivations looked at this and yes. said, this is our opportunity to get right. the laws changed by exactly. folk making that's, this kid the horrible super predator when he didn't do it in the first place. That's my opinion. <laughs> that's my opinion, and I think it's borne out by the evidence in the case. So, my opinion is, that, well, first of all, the elected district attorney who oversees Middlesex County, um, the Middlesex County district attorney who was elected for a four-year term, I believe it's four-year terms. Um, yeah, it is four-year terms. Uh, he himself tried the case. It's a juvie case. It's in juvenile court. Oh. Elected district attorneys don't try their own cases. They have first assistants, and they have all kinds of people. But uh, Tom Riley was Tom Riley was the elected district attorney for Middlesex. He had been in that position um, for. Uh, he was on, on his second term. He was clearly. Um, had made clear uh, uh, statements that he was going to be running for attorney general in 1998. And um, uh, so he, the next morning, was interviewing the witnesses. He was directing the investigation within less than 24 hours after her death. And so so why, why is he, why did he, other than the obvious, why, why did he step in? himself uh I, you'd have you'd have to ask him my my theory <clears throat> my opinion is is that he stepped in because it was a huge case right it was a brutal murder in a really nice neighborhood unheard of around there it was this former altar boy uh he was you know four, he was 15 years old he was the grandson of the chief of police of somerville and it was going to garner him um, two years of, of unpaid for publicity. Well, there wasn't there also, this is Mark here, wasn't there also the issue of the two unsolved murders that were quite recent? That's correct. Um, they, you know, there were two, one was uh, a little bit more, uh, one was very recent. Uh, Deanna Kremens, a 17-year-old girl who went to Somerville High School, was murdered one block from her house three months before um, uh, Janet Downing was murdered, and that was unsolved, and he was getting a lot of criticism for that being unsolved. As you say, um, unsolved murders are bad for business. That's correct. They're, they're bad for business. They don't, uh, they don't elect uh, district attorneys who can't solve murders. Um, and there had been one uh, a few years earlier than that, uh, a Harvard professor, a feminist lawyer, lawyer named uh, uh, Krug, Professor Krug, uh, was on her street in Cambridge, which is also part of Middlesex County, right near Harvard University, very near her house, walking uh, near her house at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when she was uh, fatally stabbed. And that murder was never solved. Any any similarities between the victims? Uh, uh, none, either, that I, none that I can see. How about look? None Phys physical appearance? N I don't know what Professor Krug looked like. I don't have... A picture of her, but um, Deanna was 17, Janet was 42. Deanna was a yeah, young girl, like and different purpose Janet entirely. was a, a mother of four. And now, know? at the crime scene of the one we're talking about here, the one where they're blaming Eddie, there was a, a bloody palm print right there. Didn't belong to to her. The victim didn't belong to Eddie. Who's, right. <laughs> what's the story there? No one knows. Nothing. No. No story. They. They never identified it. There are actually, I believe, five prints in total, four or five. I can't recall. I'd have to look at my book. But there are ident four or five identifiable prints at the scene that were not, could not be identified. Weren't Eddie, weren't, weren't anyone in the household, and weren't um, Janet's. One of them is a full palm print in blood. In and they never, blood. never checked it out? No. So how do you get a conviction 
when when the only evidence is that he was in the house because he's a friend of the son. Can you hear the railroad train coming? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's coming around the um, bend. It, I ain't seen sunshine. And, and he had no motive. I mean, the, you, I it's mean, just, and it's very hard to prove murder without a motive. I, I, you know, it, you guys know you write a lot of these books, but um, and and Tom Riley, the district attorney, said right away, we have no idea what this motive can be. It's going to take us a while to figure out what the motive can be. He had not only that, he had no opportunity. I mean, if you just take the simple fact that he is accounted for by all means the district attorney would agree he's accounted for up until about 9:15 that night he's with his family 25 yards across the street she is he Eddie is seen leaving the house at 9 leaving Janet's house at 9:20 um and as i explained in the book what happened was that he did leave his house at, at 9:15 he went across the street to see if Ryan was home he walked into the house. He saw Janet on the floor. He he couldn't. He thought she had fallen down the stairs or had fainted. And then he saw all the blood. He couldn't understand how she could have gotten so injured from a fall or or fainting. He went over to her. He turned her over. He saw how extensively she was injured. And as he stood up to run, he was confronted by a uh, uh, a man with a knife and a stocking over his head. Oh, we're going to have to uh, take a 60-second break, Margot. We'll be right back and find out more about the politics of murder on Outlaw Radio USA's True Crime Uncensored. of the Big Apple, either sell drugs or rob drug dealers. They decided to do both, and they weren't concerned about the cops because they were the cops. Yep, drug dealers with a badge, criminals in a squad car, and the big brass knew all about it. They didn't stop them because, well, we don't want a scandal. So, <laughs> it's the fascinating true story based on Ken Urell's own personal memoir, written by myself and Frank C. Gerardo Jr., and it's available right now, Betrayal in Blue. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Just a point. The, the book comes out on Tuesday. Thank you. He, he keeps track of this stuff. Just keeping track of your stuff. That's Featuring <laughs> Mark C.G. Boyer. Sunday's a bad day to launch. <laughs> yeah. It's a bad day to launch. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll that. launch it like Monday, maybe. <laughs> no, not Monday's not good either. No, Tuesday? Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay, we'll launch the book Tuesday. It's available for advance order, however. If it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Belgium. Or Denmark. <laughs> What's one of those? Tony Ingalls was in that movie. Was yeah. he really? Of, really? Yeah, well, okay. I think I was in that movie. Everybody was in that movie. I wasn't in that movie. I wasn't anybody then. And meanwhile, back to Margot Nash, uh, author of Politics of Murder. And boy, is this, this is just too bizarre. So you got this kid, Eddie, mm -hmm. and, and they, they're, I mean, they're, they're putting him on the southbound freight. I mean, they're railroading this kid like crazy. And I, you're, I, I did that bit already. I know how you did I just yeah, For okay. people who missed it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you're seeing this. Are you connecting any of the dots while you're watching this? Uh, you mean while I'm... While you're there, I, you know, while you're putting uh, your hands on his shoulders well, and, you know, all that stuff. I knew, I knew, always knew, and always, there was no, never a doubt in my mind that Eddie did not commit this crime. You cannot 
walk across the street in a white T-shirt and blue shorts that you've had on all day, stab somebody 98 times, beat them senseless between three rooms, get blood all over everything. And not a spot. Not a spot on Undress her. Undress her. Stab her clothing. Put her clothing back on and leave within five minutes without a spot of blood on you. Let me ask you something. Why he stabbed her, then stabbed the clothing? The perpetrator stabbed her 98 times That's from her head too short. down to her... Almost 100. She was 5'2". Oh, God. Yep. That's actually and awful. You're not kidding. It was a horrible, horrible, right. horrible murder. That's, that's a um, crime of rage. I mean, that is re- up close and personal rage. I knew when you're stabbing the clothes. That's right. But, so, but not, a, and, not a drop of blood on, uh, on the kid, right? Not a drop of blood on on Eddie's white shirt that he'd had on all day. Uh, not a not no blood on his clothing on his fingernails. Not, not even not even a spaghetti stain. Nothing. Nothing. Well, why the hell did the jury convict him? Um, it, he, in my opinion, again, he was tried in the press by the, the that you know uh, Riley had control. Of the press, the press was fascinated with this case. Court TV covered it gavel to gavel, and before that, even in the transfer hearings, he was arraigned in the adult public courthouse, in you know with cameras there. Uh, everything was done publicly for maximum exposure, and as um, as the prosecution developed its theory, um, they developed its theory of the case, it, which was also preposterous. Uh, was that eventually they tried they were when he was still in juvenile court and they were in, in Massachusetts you have to get a child transferred right. from juvenile court to adult court and that re- requires a transfer hearing he the district attorney lost that hearing and, oh I bet he was uh, upset he lost that hearing and uh, and you know at that point uh, he appealed the loss of that hearing <laughs> to the Supreme Judicial Court who uh, who sent it back to the original judge and then eventually removed the original judge and appointed another oh, judge boy, they were on to a hear campaign it, they they went to the Supreme Court I, I can't tell you how many times in December um, Judge Regina Quinlan wonderful wonderful judge an ex-nun I might add get, uh, um, get, uh, awarded bail to Eddie so that he could go home on a bracelet and he was supposed to be released Christmas Eve. They were at the Supreme Judicial Court on Christmas Eve afternoon, getting the Supreme Court to stop his release on bail. So essentially, Eddie was arrested um, t- uh, one month after he left his freshman year in high school, and he hasn't been out since. He's 36 now. Where the hell is his defense attorney? Well, that's another problem. And it, I've heard it said, I mean, in uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Maryland case, the Adnan Syed case, um, his uh, a book has been written about that too, and she makes a very good point. She said, for a wrongful conviction, you need failure of three things: failure of the police, failure of the prosecution, and fail, you know, or the ju- judicial system, and and failure of the, the defense counsel. And in this particular case, he had a reputable defense counsel. The final final person that that was on the case. Um, who did? Who just didn't do his job? If you ask me, uh, I and I think that there are a number of reasons that that happened. There, um, but uh, I th- and I try to point out clearly in my book how he failed. I mean, he, I don't. He couldn't have even read um, some of the some of the evidence. Um, did you the talk DNA to this guy? Evidence. Have I talked to him? Yeah. I have not. Oh, I've talked to him many times. But not, uh, I haven't talked to him in the last five years because he's been in federal prison. Oh, the attorney? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's clear. Were the attorneys in federal prison? Yes. Why? He was uh, convicted um, in federal court of laundering drug money for a client. And he, I think he got uh, a little over four years uh, to serve at uh, Danbury, or as we call it, Club Danbury. In the federal um, penitentiary yeah. in Danbury, fed. Yeah. club well, fed, right? 
Well, that kind of uh, undermines his credibility a little bit. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think he, I think, you know, he had a wonderful reputation. I think he failed Eddie miserably. And, and I try to point out in my book how, what ways he failed him. I think he did run out of money. I, I think that that's, that's true. But the fact of the matter is, is that he never hired, he never did any investigation of the case. He never did any independent testing. He had one expert that he hired. He hired him at the start of the trial. You know, he had been on the case for two years. So, um, how, how about this? Do you think he threw the case? Uh, I don't think he threw the case. Just think he was incompetent. <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't complacent, think he threw the probably. case. I think if he had thrown the case, he wouldn't have gone to Club Fed. Yeah. Okay. All right. He would have got. He would have gotten some consideration. Oh uh, yeah, that would have been nicer to him. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. I said it would have been, been nicer to him if he'd thrown the case. Yes, yes, I think so, especially since this, the the governor, who was also part of this, was speaking openly about you know what a monster Eddie O'Brien was and how he had to be kept behind bars. William Wells, who has recently run for U.S. Vice President with Jill Stein. No. William Wells was a federal prosecutor. Just, just a quick correction. He ran with Gary Johnson. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. That's right. That's right. Jill Stein was the Green Party. She Green yep. Party. She's Green no. Party. Right. She's Green okay. Party. She was Libertarian. For, she's going for the uh, recount. He's Libertarian. Right. Although he endorsed Hillary when he spoke. <laughs> Who did? Who did? <laughs> it gets so complicated. Bill Weld endorsed Hillary. Bill Weld. <laughs> really? Bill Weld is the is the only governor. You know, Massachusetts is a very Democratic. Uh, state. Very democratic, for, always. Except for the seat of governor. He won the popular vote in Massachusetts as a Republican with 75% of the vote. And he left two years into his term. Well, well hang on. But, but the, current was, the, the current governor is a, vice, is, is a Republican. And for the great Francis Sargent was Republican. Right. Right. But they didn't win by 75% of the vote. Oh, no. no of the popular no, vote. No, no. Those were squeakers. Mm -hmm. So I'm... I'm anyway, I'm, just, just, say, just saying that Federal, you know, William Weld was a, was in the federal uh, uh, prosecutor's office. He was the federal um, um, uh, prosecutor in Boston in, in this area uh, before Wayne Budd, who was the second, who was also involved in this case on a peripheral level. Now, when you started investigating this or writing this book, uh, there must have been people who told you, Margo, sit down and shut up. No, I was told... <laughs> It's very, very dirty, and it's too dirty. You really should get an investigated journal journalist to do it. Um, and uh, and then I decided. Uh, well, I didn't really decide to write the book. Eddie asked me to write the book. Um, I had been. Uh, I had been. I, I I was meeting with Eddie in July of uh, 2015, and it was the 20th around the 20th anniversary. Of his incarceration. Why, why were and you there? As, why were you meeting with him? Visiting, visiting him. Oh. I've stayed in touch with him all these years. Oh, I see. Okay. I've remained involved with the case all these years. He's had some uh, appellate attorneys. Um, one, uh, uh, one, a, a group of appellate attorneys who actually did not um, uh, even file anything for ten years. But um, I've worked with all of his subsequent attorneys. Um, not so much with his trial attorney, um, which I was supposed to be working with, but, you know, I just thought he knew what he was doing, and he wasn't sharing a lot of information with me, um, and I believed he knew what he was doing, because he was noted for well, this. Sure fooled you. Now, do you think that... Yeah, that well, was, you know, was, was, I, I... Let me I ask it know. this way. Do you yeah. think that they got together in a room and said, you know, this is a great opportunity to get this law passed if we just run this kid? And, you know, or did, was it just I that they were of like they, mind? I don't think they got together in a room. I thought they, I think they made phone calls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same think, difference, yeah. I think that phone calls were made, and I think that everybody said this, this would be a, a wonderful opportunity. This will get us so much attention, and we'll be on the forefront of the juvenile law. Uh, it, it changed the juvenile law in Massachusetts forever. Um, Eddie... Eddie, Eddie's case made it possible to send a child to an adult prison 
uh, for life without parole. What's so the big advantage of that? Why would they want that? They w these William Wells was a big um, no rehabilitation, put them on the rock pile guy. Um, yeah, tough Tom on Riley. Time. Tom Riley ran uh, ran and and served as a Democrat, but his best friend is uh, is uh, Wayne Budd. Best friend. That's who he started his law firm with. Who was a U.S. attorney in Boston, um, and uh, you know he's a Republican, and he, he he's very close to the Republican players. Uh, well, in, this, in I there. mean, this seems like a a cosmic setup. If people read this book, do you, which I hope they do, because it's a fabulous book, Politics of Murder. Do you think there'll there'll be any repercussions? Will they say, let's look at this again, let's give this kid a new trial? He's not a kid anymore. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I this is a nightmare. Hope so. So, um, it, it is a, it is a nightmare, and and uh, that's my hope is that people will say, let's look at everything again. Why don't we Why don't we go through this again? Because this doesn't look right. Why did this take twenty years to get out? Uh, he's not out. Eddie's no, not no, out. no. He means he means this information. Why Why does it take twenty years to, oh. to get to the book? Uh, first of all, I was a practicing attorney um, all of those years, um, and I do believe that the only reason uh, that this book got written, well, is because I had access to all the legal files um, as Eddie's guardian ad litem, and so I could look at the actual evidence and documents. I sat through all the trials. I sat through all the hearings. Um, anybody who would write this book, if you, if you were an attorney... <laughs> You would have had a very difficult time practicing in Massachusetts, I think. Oh, they didn't have for you. Why... Wow. Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm retired. Yeah. Boy, I bet they're mad about now. that. <laughs> <laughs> we can't destroy her career. She's done. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, I've retired, and that was one of the reasons why I felt like, okay, it's going to be dirty, but I, I can do it. You know, um, I, I am. I'm in a position that I can do this, and I've never written a book before. Well, you did a great I, I job. Does the family well, of the you. family of the victim? Uh, did they believe that Eddie did it? I believe they do. Yes, um, I think it was really, really hard for them. You have to remember that that these were two six, you know, the two children that um, were at home, or there were three children at home with Janet living at that home at the time, and. Um, the two boys were 16-year-old twins, Ryan and Paul, and Eddie was 15, so he'd known these kids. Paul was Eddie's sister's best friend, and um, the, as I said, the district attorney took charge of this case hours after, personally, and he personally met, with, he was personally with that family nonstop for the next two years. They had his personal attention, and um and that was very important. And I believe that they only got the information that he told them. And oh, I believe that there's information in this book that they don't know and didn't know. Well, if they read this book, be, which they probably will, they're liable to go, holy crap. You know, they're liable to get mad I, as hell. I would, I would hope so. I would hope so because, at, you know, at the end of the day, what it means is, is that the politicians and the district attorney and the people who 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 prosecuted this case really didn't care who killed Janet Downing. They only cared about convicting Eddie O'Brien. And who killed Janet Downing, if she were my friend or my mother, is very important to me. Yeah. Um, and you want to know who really did it, not just, just don't bring up old wounds here. Exactly. Exactly. That's, I mean, it's, it's not something I relish doing. I did not want to hurt this family at all um, and I and I very much wanted them to know that uh, that there's a lot of facts that they needed to know that they probably were not told um, by the district attorney for instance that Eddie's DNA is not on the alleged murder weapon or the murder weapon that Tom Riley claims is the murder weapon it's a, an unknown male DNA um, that was not brought up it was mentioned at trial the defense attorney didn't quite understand the DNA evidence, didn't capitalize on that, and I know that Tom Riley didn't tell them that. Eddie's DNA, Eddie was excluded as a primary source of the DNA under Janet's fingernails that she fought for her life with. Whose DNA is it? 
Let's find out. Yeah, can't they? they I mean, find... things have improved a lot DNA-wise in the last 20 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I believe that we can find this killer. I believe we can. Um, in your Mark material, has a question here. Yeah, in material, you, there's uh, a uh, relative that was living with the victim and prior been, to yep. her murder was uh, evicted. That's correct. Um, so how, did, how, her, from your from your position, how does he fit into this? Well, um, I think that he is definitely a person of interest, somebody that needs to be investigated. Obviously, um, if you know he he was Janet was terrified of him. She spent the last ten hours of her life with her friend Gina Mahoney, who lived across the street. She told Gina Mahoney that day she was terrified of her brother-in-law. She said why she was terrified of him. She said what he had been doing. He had been coming into her house, moving things around. He had keys to her house that he wouldn't give back. He had confronted her um, with a diary that was stolen from her night table at her place of work. He had surrounded, he uh, not he, she didn't know who it was, but the cab company that he worked for surrounded her car with cabs one day. They, she was. She felt she was being terrorized. And, Sounds like um, it. And, and she was very, very clear about who she was afraid of, and it was, and it was her brother-in-law. But not the, Eddie. The man that she was, never said she was afraid of little Eddie. She she loved Eddie, and and she was like a she was like a second mother to Eddie. Eddie had no animosity toward her, and she had none toward Eddie. But she had terrible fear about this member of her family. Now I know that. When the when the uh, when the ambu- when the first responders arrived at the scene, they pen they there was the, he drove a cab in Somerville. Uh, this family member and um, his cab was uh, blocked in by the ambulances and first responders. <laughs> so he had been parked at the house when the first responders got there. Ooh, and I bet he was scared. And he, he lost his keys in the backyard, which was the exit route for the murderer. Oh, God. Um, I mean, and, oh, Jesus. This, this and, really pisses and, me off. Yeah, yeah uh, you can imagine how the O'Brien family feels. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane. Uh, they, they, um, he, he, he just, uh, there's so much, there was so much that, uh, that needed to be investigated relative to Artie Ortiz, and that was never investigated. There's no police report where he was ever interviewed, oh. although he claimed he was interviewed because he came back to Gina Mahoney's house the day after um, Janet was murdered and said that he had talked to Janet, and, and Janet had told him that she wanted him to have his car, her car. Well, if she died, she if she died mysteriously and violently, I want you to have my car. Right. In fact, what she said to Gina Mahoney the day she died, the day she died, she said to Gina Mahoney, if anyone, if anything like what happened to Deanna Cremens ever happens to me, please promise me you'll have it investigated, investigated, investigated. And Gina Mahoney said, why are you saying that? Has something happened? And then she told them all of these stories that had been happening with Artie Ortiz. And she was terrified of her. Oh boy! That's how that all. Came. That's how she spent the last. She left Gina Mahoney's at five o'clock, and she was dead four hours later. Oh gee! And they're going Water. after this kid. This is insane. I think all these people, if they allegedly conspired to railroad this kid, should be double slocked up in a slammer. Right. I would like Hardwood. to. I'd like to ask about which will never happen, no. as you know. Um, I'd like to ask from your uh, from your perspective and experience. You yeah. have uh, the prosecutor and. The governor pushing for a legislative agenda, and right. have a high priority in convicting this uh, our, our our perpetrator, right? Or alleged perpetrator. Yeah, alleged perpetrator. Now, right. um, doesn't the judge have some responsibility here? Uh, have you ever been involved or heard of a case where it just said, "Whoa"? You know, it's, it's it's obvious to anyone with any coherence that this guy is innocent. The, the judge, the judge in the juvenile court, um, uh, did try to uh, put the brakes on it and said that if in fact he 
he's convicted of this crime. For he, he was given, you know, untold number of psychological exams, psych, psychiatric exams. He spent hours with psychiatrists and psychologists who said he suffers from no mental illness or defect. He's a normal 15-year-old kid. So there's nothing that we can say that he needs treatment for. Well, he'll and, need it now after being in prison for 20-some years. There you go. I mean, he's gonna, go. It's um, like being a prisoner of war. So the juvenile well, judge was and, trying to put the kibosh on it. But and they, he tried to keep him in the, in the juvenile court, saying even if he's found guilty of murder in the juvenile court, at that particular time, what would have happened is he would have served his first time until he was 21 in juvenile detention, undergoing rehabilitation. And then he would have been moved to an adult court for 15 years. That's the worst case scenario, and he'd be out today. This um, is a nightmare. Even if he was found guilty. Uh, that was the state of the law then. But <laughs> they changed the law as, uh, as Eddie moved through the system so that when Eddie was... They, they took that judge off the case. The Supreme Court took him off the case. Oh, boy, did they, have a, they had their agenda amped up on steroids. They were going to do they anything had, to get they there. Had every, they had every part of the system working. <laughs> working well, it hasn't working been long the enough. Wheels. Their goal has been achieved. Now they can let the poor kid out. <laughs> exactly. It's really awful. That's what I, uh, let him out and compensate him for what you have done. You've ruined his life. Where's the prosecutor now? He's in private practice with a firm in Boston. And has he had made any public comment on the material you're presenting? He has not. He has not. Um, I I would think that would be very unwise <laughs> for him to do because yeah. so far, and the book's only been uh, available, uh, it was available early November 7th, the launch date was the 22nd of November, but the sentiment, there have been, there's been a, a very positive review in the Somerville Weekly Times but the sentiment running with this book um, is that this is a terrible travesty, and I haven't read anything negative except for uh, some social media stuff by somebody uh, connected to one of the people in the book uh, who should have been investigated. Um, but uh, the sentiment is, mo is, is, is all running toward this is a travesty. Let's investigate. You know, we, we had a, a well, I'm sure there's more than one, but one that I'm familiar with here in California. We had the uh, author of the book on the show. The book was called Scapegoat. And uh, three white guys in an Oldsmobile did a home invasion, wrong home. Uh, wound up mm -hmm. killing mom, dad, the kids, neighbor kid. One of the kids survived. Uh, a lot of people saw the three white guys in the Oldsmobile, but they only focused on and arrested and prosecuted a black guy down the street. And the survivor of this in testifying court said, no, not him. It was three white guys in an Oldsmobile. <laughs> and they paid no attention to him. And the, the black exactly. guys, and he's exactly. still in prison. And they went to the attorneys, have repeatedly gone to the governor, more than one governor, and said, listen, this is insane. Why is this, well, let him out. It's for his other misdeeds. Yeah, well, the only thing he ever did was he stole a car. That he was convicted of. Huh? Oh, so he might have done something else wrong that we should put him in prison the rest of his life for. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very, very hard to undo this. And the three guys that did it, they're still out there. Exactly. Whoever murdered Janet is still out there. Um, they, it, from, from all the material that I've uh, picked up uh, in reviewing this, this case, they, yeah. the technical aspects of the police investigation were reasonable. Really? Well, let, so? let, let, let me follow. Okay. All right. So they okay. had they had they collected all the evidence. They did all the testing. What the what the prosecuting attorney did with that material is different than the police collecting it and not going any further with it. They so didn't so if, if they were if the police were so motivated to find the bad guy, they had enough information to actually go and find the bad guy. Right. I find that just completely puzzling. If you have a reasonable investigation and evidence, you follow it. Exactly. Not only that, Eddie had been interviewed and had, and had a videotaped interview that he gave with a psychiatrist, a psychologist, that he did a full interview of everything he saw and did that night. 
Then he had was given sodium pentothal, which is true serum, yeah. not admissible in court, but it's like a lie detector. And he told the story again, and he told the exact same story. And the prosecution had that tape in October. So they knew everything, every reason why Eddie couldn't have been the perpetrator. And they simply ignored it. They simply ignored the next-door neighbors who heard uh, Janet falling or someone uh, having a, a fight on the stairwell, which is where she was murdered, um, at 8.15 p.m., when Eddie was clearly sitting on his front porch with his family, seen by neighbors and everybody. There's no dispute. Um, you know, they were not interviewed. They actively... Gina Mahoney called the detectives for a solid year, saying, I have all kinds of information. I spent 10 hours with Janet that day. I know a lot of information. I need to talk to you. They said, we have all the information we need. Oh, no, 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 no. Yes. I think but maybe, uh, has Eddie's family thought of launching a civil suit against all these people? They just want their son home. Yeah, I thought maybe a That's civil suit want. would... Uh would rile things up a bit. They could bring your book in and they say, look, you guys are assholes. They were pretty much bankrupted by this criminal investigation. I mean, they're, they're people of, of moderate means, uh, working class family um, who, who mortgaged their house and put $175,000 they didn't have into his criminal defense. They had no money left. To launch a civil oh, suit. Oh, this is an no. outrage. It's an absolute outrage. They have a new governor there. Can the governor commute a sentence or anything like that? Based on the us? governor is Charlie Baker. He was Governor Weld's chief legal counsel when Eddie was convicted. Oh, gee. He was the one that was pushing the laws. He had to be Writing ashamed of himself. <laughs> well, Damn. that's who we have for the governor now. He's not likely to commute a sentence. <laughs> yeah, what a nightmare. I don't think. You wonder how many of these go on. I mean, it just scares the hell out of me. Um, the Innocence it's, Project has, has picked this up. What's with it's, that? It's, called, it's actually called the Innocence Program. Um, the Innocence Program is the local um, Massachusetts program with the Committee for Public Council Services. It's not the... It works closely with the Innocence Project. They've, they've had the case now for... Um, It'll be almost a year and a half. Uh, they haven't filed anything yet. They've been investigating and going through all the uh, the e evidence. Well, hopefully they'll be able to kick some cosmic butt, because this kind of stuff right. is, it sounds downright un-American. <laughs> well, that's because it is. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's horrible. It, it really is horrible. Yeah, it, it, the thing is, it could happen to anybody. <laughs> oh, I know. You know I've could, seen it, it too it many could. times. It uh, is very, very scary. Uh, it is, and I do hope that they're able to do something. They've got to prove that there's new evidence. That's the legal standard. Well, how about they all that stuff from uh, Miss Mahoney across the street? That would that be new evidence? Is that new hearsay? Uh, that's hearsay. I mean, there are ways of getting that in to evidence, but that was never put into evidence by his defense counsel. Maybe he could do a, a new DNA run on the uh, stuff under her fingernails. That's they don't they don't have to do a new one. They just have to run it through APHIS and find out who it is. See if he's on file. Usually, people who do this kind of a murder have their fingerprints on file for something else. Very rarely do people just wander around the neighborhood, slaughter somebody's mother, and never commit another crime. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is first the way you first described it, being as it was up close, personal, ninety-eight times with a knife and stabbing the clothes. Uh, right. It has to be someone who knows the victim, knows them intimately, not sexually, but intimately, knows them well, and right. is mad as hell. Exactly. And not going to take exactly. it anymore. Yeah. Because right. you don't do that. Exactly. I mean, that's a rage murder. It, yeah. A, 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 a Somebody who's in there, nothing was stolen. Her purse was there. Nothing was even moved out of her purse. It was clearly... Clearly, a rage murder. Margo, and, we could I mean, we could we could talk about this forever. For a long, long. Yeah, time. I, I was at the end day. of the yeah. show, Howard. That was my phone. Well, oh, okay. So <laughs> oh, I thought it sounded at the end of the show. So no, I, no, I have the, the, the same song on my phone. Guess what, Margo? We get to talk for a few more minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get to listen. Now, this is fascinating. <laughs> oh, I mean, this this is good. something's got to happen here. Uh, oh, I, I, I just get so frustrated with this stuff. And the more, the longer well, I've been writing true crime books, the more of these stories I hear, and the more upset I get. 
and you're going to be hearing more and more of them. With, I mean, the Innocence Project and the Innocence Programs all over the country, are, the Daisy case, I mean, they're turning these cases over. There's so many men and women in jail for things they didn't, they didn't uh, for crimes they didn't commit. And I think it's going to be a whole new genre of literature. I don't know if it's going to be called Stories of Innocence or, uh, or, um, or, uh, well, yeah, Fred Rosen has a book. Did they do it? <laughs> you know, people who were in prison. Did they do it? Well, yeah. I mean, I heard it, one estimate that, that uh, up to sixty percent. Oh, it for? Up to sixty percent of people in prison are guilty. Oh, that's that would be that would be about right. That means forty percent aren't. That's right. <laughs> that must be so um, terrifying. My my uh, my daughter's boyfriend had the cops pull a gun on him. The other day, on Thanksgiving Day, uh, look at him. For, you ever look at him? <laughs> but you don't pull a gun on someone just because they look like Osama bin Laden. <laughs> well, you, you, you do. Uh, no. I, does, does, and that's because he was. Does he need a, walking does he need a good lawyer? No, no. We we, we oh, talked. We, talk, <laughs> we already talked to one. Man, she's coming right. She's flying. Well, no, we got the guy that uh, did the Ramparts uh, case. Uh, uh -huh. We consulted with him, and he said, did they break his arm? I said, no. I said, well, says, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. <laughs> and if you talk about it, which I'm doing right now, says, they'll come after you. So, Uh-oh. Yeah. That show business. Well, Spaghetti is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, just, it's a rough I one. I just hope nobody comes after me. That's all I had to say. Well, they're, they're yeah. mad at you, but, you know, once you achieve a certain degree of notoriety, Either they let you alone or they kill you. I just thought I'd let well, you know. Well, that's what I mean. Right. <laughs> see, see, my contacts in Massachusetts now are in the state house, and that's that is a fact. So we're coming after you. They're, they're coming after her now. I just hope they buy the book Politics of Murder. Yeah, there we go. That's the title of the book, Politics of Murder. It just came out officially on the 27th. It's both uh, an e-book and a paperback, probably also an audio book if it's not already. In January, it'll be out in audio book. Okay. So you can listen to it. You can buy it. You can read it. You can believe it. You, you can, can hear get it. mad as hell uh, that this ever happened Good. and try to get this kid out. He's not a kid anymore. Uh, what's his uh, uh, attitude? Is he totally depressed, is near suicidal? Or no, what? he's... he's a wonderful man. I mean, I, he's just a wonderful man, and I can't wait till he does get out and he can talk to people and people can meet him. Well, there we he, go. He he has the most incredible attitude toward life, and he has done. He has never been in trouble. He is. He, he you know he's he's a great guy. Happy and we are happy, happy to hear him. that. Thank you so much yeah. for coming. Yep. Yeah, great, uh, now great, now great book. I recommend everyone buy it. Politics is Murder by Margo Nash. You can get it anywhere you want. Yeah, <laughs> online. All right, thanks, Margo. Thank you so much. Hey, Burrow. Yeah. What's next? Uh, Magic Ben Allen and the Demons of Decadence, including us, because we're decadent. On Allen Radio, USA.com.